Hey kids, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and this is episode number 121, September 2019. Our guest is Martin Dockery. Like, how long do I have to sit out here, you know, until I can be like, well, did it, you know? And I write one customer. I gotta at least have one customer, you know what I mean? Before I can pack up and go. And there's a guy who's standing, like, just far enough away where I think to myself that maybe if I earnestly call out to him, he won't even hear me, and I can be like, I tried, and go home, right? And so I take a deep breath, and I go, um, <clears throat> excuse me! And I could see him turn in my direction. I'm like, oh, rats, you know? And I'm like, uh, would you like a strawberry sandwich? And then very slowly, he starts to walk in my direction. And the closer he's getting to me, the more I can see him. And the more I'm coming to understand, oh, no, he's not that kind of man who's going to like my restaurants. This is what Martin is a master storyteller slash playwright slash performer who travels the globe spinning yarns, telling tales, and engaging audiences. We met when he performed at the Ithaca Fringe Festival in 2015, and believe me, he blew our audiences away. Folks who saw the show came back to see him sometimes twice. He is a mesmerizing performer, and with his life partner, Vanessa Quinnell, they write plays and bring them on tour as well. It's a pretty busy life for the both of them. We managed to find a small window between engagements and traveling to catch up with Martin, and we got right to it. When I first saw you perform, I was literally mesmerized after the first eight minutes um, with just what you were doing on stage and the command you had of being on stage and your ability to tell stories, which, contrary to popular belief, is not a common quality that most people share. There are people who can tell a two-minute story in just under four hours, <laughs> and people who can tell a four-hour story in about 30 seconds and leave out all the important stuff. So at what point in your life did you begin telling stories, realizing that you could, and who were your first audiences for this? I mean, uh, you know, I think I came through it through doing school plays and stuff like that, like most of us are first exposed to theater doing that. Um, but every every New Year's Eve, I would uh, put on a play uh, for my parents. And in that play would also be my brother and this other family and their kids. And we'd always spend every New Year's Eve together. And uh, uh, it just has sort of seemed natural to want to put on a theatrical production at New Year's um, since since becoming an adult, I, I've found that not everyone does that. Um, and so uh, I've always loved uh, live theatrical performances, uh, plays, and uh, being on stage and trying to communicate stories via that way. Um, actual storytelling itself, where it's just me on stage literally looking at the audience and telling a story, isn't something I ever thought about as a as a theatrical uh, mode for my own personal self until um, probably about uh, 15 or 16 years ago. And I started going to open mics in New York. And it was only then when I suddenly had this sort of eureka moment of realizing like, not only um, is it way easier to be the only one involved in a production, you don't need your friends on New Year's Eve. You can just, uh, you don't have to schedule anybody else. You can just get up and do it yourself and just speak directly to the audience. Um, but also, it's a wonderful blend of both writing and acting, both things which I greatly enjoy, um, while not being either one or the other. In other words, like, I'm on stage and I'm being myself and I'm speaking, but I'm, I'm not totally being myself. I'm being some sort of performative version of myself. I'm sort of like acting like myself. And it's not exactly like writing because I don't actually write anything down when I perform these, these hour long shows, but I have, I have planned it all out ahead of time. And I have spoken the story out loud to myself in my living room when I'm alone before I get up on stage. And so it's, it's writing and it's acting, but it's neither one exactly. It's some sort of strange hybrid creature in the middle, and it's so direct. And um, the connection with the audience, I'm looking right into people's eyes, and they're looking back to me. And if you can feel like it's palpable, the the kind of cathartic energy that is released in a room. So um, 
to answer your question of like, when did I sort of first uh, come to understand that storytelling was something I liked doing and enjoyed doing? Um, it's a slow process over time, um, realized via these open mics in New York, and then eventually just doing my own hour-long shows. Uh, yeah. Wow. Um, you mentioned you doing you know the, the the New Year's Eve shows for your family. Was it a theater family? Because you obviously had support for this sort of <laughs> non usual <laughs> event. Yeah, I think I mean, or maybe just patience. Maybe they're just a very patient family. That's maybe not a, also maybe not a family, right? <laughs> just because these plays that we would put on. I mean, you know, I remember one of the plays was Popeye. Another one was Superman. Um, uh, and so you know, they they weren't like the classics. They weren't. They were not, um, and they were all sort of devised on the spot. But uh, my mother, she went to college for, for theater, and my grandmother also, she went to RADA, which is the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts in London. Uh, my grandmother wrote some books on theater. She, was, she did costume design for a while. Um, my grandmother's parents, which are my great-grandparents uh, from England, and they actually um, – they toured the States for a year in an acting company. Uh, they traveled around the different cities putting on shows, which is now what I do in, in, in around mostly North America, going to different cities and putting on shows. So um, it's gone back at least as far as my great-grandparents. There must be some sort of, some sort of gene in there that – makes one want to stand up in front of other people and and you know verbally dance <laughs> it's insane right it's, but my who yeah would, what sane person would do this i know but my father my father uh, a lawyer and not not a performer at all and that side of my family my father's side not not performers in the least so um i guess uh i know that my I know I come from my mother's side. Maybe it's a mystery where I come from on my father's side. I don't know. Yeah. yeah well, it uh, could be the seeds for another show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. You just mentioned that you don't write things down, and you also mentioned that you have hour-long shows. Uh, for the sake of our audience, uh, your website lists nine uh, autobiographical shows. Okay. So none of this is written down. Right. Um when you applied for the Ithaca Fringe, I had everybody send in a script because we wanted to vet what the material would be. We didn't want something so horrifically antisocial that it, it, it would have just... Uh-huh, yeah, right. Okay. And yeah. I had to write back to you and say, Martin, uh, you forgot to send me a script. And you came back with, well, I don't write things down and I don't have one, but here's my website. You can look up to all these different places that I've played. And I did. And I said, okay, fine. Terrific. We put your name in the hat and uh, the name came out because we did everything by lottery. Um, so the question that I'm finally getting to here is what's your development process? I mean, if you don't write anything down and you've got hour long shows, um, and I know what it's like to learn lines to go into a show and it's not always as easy as people think, but You've got nine shows in your head, right? Yeah. What's your, devel- what's your development process? How do you how do you actually go from germ of idea to opening night? Hey. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a good question, and I don't, I don't, I don't know exactly, because, but I know that like a key component is um, is anxiety uh, and <laughs> the fear of of failure. Um, so, uh, but for those really to click on for, for me to really feel the failure and to feel the anxiety, which I hate, no one likes feeling anxiety. I don't like it, but I've come to accept that it seems to be an integral part of the creative process. So the deadline, so I have to apply to a festival and then I'm in, and then there's a deadline, a moment that I will definitely be on stage. And that deadline has to be very fast approaching like three weeks or two weeks away and I, I don't haven't I don't have anything yet and I have to really feel the sort of flames um, growing hotter uh, to make me be able to focus and cut out 
looking at Facebook, cut out looking at the New York Times, cut out looking at whatever, cut out going out for drinks, cut out everything, and then just being in my apartment and taking three hours a day for two weeks and and talking out loud to myself when no one else can hear me in the apartment that I have to believe that I'm not being listened to. Like if Vanessa's in the apartment, like she has to be listening to music. Like she has to promise me she will not stop listening, will not take her headphones off. Uh, and then I will be in my living room and I'll stand up and I will tell a story that I've been thinking about for a few months. So I'm not just necessarily starting from zero, but I've been thinking like, oh, I want to do a story uh, about this thing, whatever the thing might be. And um, and then I will just start uh, speaking it aloud and imagining that I'm in the audience hearing it and imagining, am I still listening if I'm in the audience? Do I care? Have have is you know do i can i predict what the performer who is me can i predict what he's going to say next uh and then uh and then it just and then it luckily so far it comes out i i keep waiting for the day when like this technique actually um fails me i actually experience the failure and, and whatnot but i don't necessarily know what's going to come out you know for the show that i did at ithaca it's called delirium and yep. that show was was created in, in this method that I'm talking about. And I, I, um, I went out to, um, a little cottage out on the tip of Long Island in Montauk. And I, I gave myself some days there and I said, I'm going to go out and I'm going to sit out there. I'm going to go to the beach. You know, it was, um, it was not summer, so it was cold. You know, it was, uh, Perfect, right, for being alone. And I brought a journal with me uh, from when I had traveled through India for three months, uh, 20 years before this. And I thought, I'm going to do a show about India. And I don't know what the show is going to be about. And I walked down the beach and I read the beginning entry out loud to myself. And I thought that that was a wonderful story arriving in India and as a, as a you know, a guy in his 20s. And um, then I sat down on a rock and I said to myself, right. Now tell that story to the ocean, which would have to be a stand-in for the audience. And, uh, and then what came out of my mouth um, had absolutely nothing to do with India and everything to do with my dog, Lucy, who had died um, uh, a couple years before that. And, and then that became the show. It was a show about Lucy and about, um, about love and about death. And uh, the word India was never mentioned once. So – that sort of is how the shows come out. I will think about something for a while. I'll believe I'm going to be doing it about something. But then when I sit down, um, who knows what's going to come out. And then when I'm performing it, you know, then it, there, there, is, there is the energy that I feel in me is true to the extent that like obviously this is what I want to be talking about now. And I think that that – need to talk about it and that desire to talk about it is present in the energy in the room and that the audience is experiencing something that's like oh this is organic this is this is he's feeling this now this is something he you know this show feels immediate for some intangible reason and i think that intangible reason is because this subject matter is is all new to me too and that it's something that's uh must have been bubbling up in my subconscious and is now coming out and the whole process is all very quick. And, uh, I think that lends, uh, some energy to the room. So that is at least how it has worked, um, in the case of delirium, but there are other shows where I've purposely gone on trips. I've traveled to, let's say Chernobyl. I went to Chernobyl one year with the idea that I'm going to do a show about Chernobyl. So when I came back and sat down, I did speak about Chernobyl. It wasn't all of a sudden some other show came out. So, but I still, even with that, gave myself just two to three weeks to sort of to sort of see what came out of my out of my head. And then somehow I'm able to remember what I say, so that when I'm standing in front of an audience, those same words, more or less, uh, come out. So that's sort of the process. Wow. As as much as that is a process. That sounds like a, a really heavy duty process. Um, well, it's heavy duty on one side, but on the other side, it's it's all very quick. You know, it's yeah. it's like um, as opposed to writing a play. I, obviously, you're a playwright, so uh, and I'm a playwright too. Writing a play like a script where you have other actors 
who then have to memorize lines and you have to – if you're in the play, you have to memorize lines too. That's a much more uh, involved and long process. You know, How long does that take for you? That can take you know, any, you know, several months, let's say, um, to write the script and then, and then to actually sit down and memorize it as we all do because there's someone, another human being on stage. And you know, I feel like plays are, uh, are all about what you are not telling the audience. And then you have characters on stage speaking around things that they already know and then the audience has to sort of figure the puzzle of the play out as it goes along as opposed to storytelling when it's just me alone on stage and I am telling the audience directly and literally what the show is about. Okay, so uh, uh, plays are subtext and storytelling is... Uh, Super text, I guess, right? (laughs) Super super text, yes. Yeah, 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 I think uh, that. So when you said it's a laborious process, in a way I feel like writing plays is more laborious because it just... It's it's uh it's more time and it's uh you know you want to uh you want to tell an audience a story without actually telling them anything is the way I think of playwriting and while storytelling I'm like hey let me tell you exactly this story and uh, well, so plays plays are meant to reveal yeah exactly we, we, yeah we're we're watching people who probably have no idea where they're going or what they're doing. Mm-hmm. discover what it is they've actually done when they actually meant to do something else. And it's one big series of reveals meant to, uh, I don't know, elucidate a certain, you know, set of happenings in a person's life. Yeah. Um, and, and people are supposed to, you're supposed to, you, the audience and the character is supposed to be realizing things that are happening in the real time of the play. And the skill of the playwright is to make that all seamless and believable and, 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 and meaningful too, yeah. all, all in one room in real time. I mean, there can be seen changes or whatever in, right. in my shows. There never are, but, but that, that is, that takes some, um, you know, careful construction of, yeah. uh, of a little building of toothpicks. I find the hardest part is making it all seem inevitable. Yeah, yeah, right? All seem inevitable without the audience uh, seeing what's coming. Yeah, yeah, or seeing what's coming, but still uh, being so interested that they just don't get up and go for milk duds, you know, at at the the lobby, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, So you bring a show on the road. You, You spend all this time putting it together and then, hey, it's opening night and then four or five months down the line. Has the show changed? I mean, does performing this show night after night cause you to rewrite as you go, discover things? Yes. Um, uh, not not in major plot points, you know, but um, certainly – because as I said, it's not written down. And also, I don't, I don't work with a director. So the first time any other human being is seeing it is when I'm on stage performing it. I mean, uh, so there will be things that I will discover that, uh, you know, uh, don't work so well or work better. Usually it's like the beginning of the show is something I will find needs some work, you know, that you, you know, that that's something I'm always tinkering with is how do you get from how do you seamlessly get an audience and yourself into a story in the most comfortable, easy, fun way. Uh, and that's something that you only kind of really discover from doing the show. And usually it involves like cutting stuff at the beginning that there's always less, there's always less explanation and less setup needed and, and realizing, yeah, right. I can just get right to the action of the story, um, quicker. But, then, but you know, little jokes along the way, things you realize are funny. Uh, uh, you know, at the, as I said at the beginning, it's not written down, so I'm discovering the words. If I'm performing the show for four or five months, the show is – though it's still not written, it is, it's very much becoming the, the same set of words each night. Not 100% the same, but I, it's – I'm realizing what – words work best in what order and uh, for the best dramatic or comedic effect and, and since comedy and drama but comedy specifically is, is all about timing and, and sort of economy of words the show gets better 
as I get better at figuring out which words to leave out and, and include. And, uh, yeah. and because it's just my own show and my own story and it's not memorized, I'm free to be molding the, the show constantly um, as, it, as it evolves uh, over, yeah. over months. I do the same thing. We put it in development. We put it in rehearsal. And, oh, mm -hmm. that line just needs to go because it's holding things up. That one's distracting. Yeah. This doesn't belong there. Why did I uh, – da, 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 da. Right. Um, but then when you do it, you have to like – you have to give it to the actors. And you right. have to be like, hey, I know you memorized it this way. Now I want – you know, how many times can you do that before the actor um, gets annoyed? Uh, puts out a contract on me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right. I've, I've I've been locked out of the theater during Tech Week. Um, not because uh -huh. I'm, I'm, you know, manic about cutting and doing all that sort of stuff. I know when to keep my hands off, but right. It's a question of just not being there anymore because my presence there mm -hmm. is it it's it's anti-progressive. It hinders right. yeah. so much more than helps. Yeah. Right. As opposed to it's just me alone on stage, I can I can right. I can work with the actor uh, ad infinitum. Well, if you didn't show up, then the whole thing would fall apart. <laughs> yeah. Let me ask you this, because um, you did Delirium at the Ithaca Fringe Festival a couple of years ago, uh -huh. and I saw the show three times. Uh, I saw I think in total I saw the show maybe. 1.87 times because I kept having to leave and go and do other things. And do your but, jobs. Yeah. Um, Peggy dragging me all over the place going, we need to leave. Um, <laughs> but uh, there were so many different parts to this and I was watching you perform. Uh, first of all, this is going to be two questions. Do you get stage fright? Because I suffer from it like nobody's business. Mm -hmm. um, but being up there, there were moments when you were so manic, so wrapped up, you were yelling, you were screaming, you were talking at a million miles a second, your body was tightening in on itself, and you looked like you were just going to implode, and then you would go to these moments where every single word meant something, and everybody was just waiting for these words to come out. To say you held the audience in the palm of your hand would be an understatement. My question is, what's it like being in the body of Martin Dockery while all this stuff is going on? You know, it's, it's like a, I feel like I am sort of a, a conductor of the energy in the room. Uh, conductor in the meaning as like a someone who's conducting an, an orchestra, um, but also sort of an, an energy conductor and that there are this energy and it's in, you know, an electricity that disappears in a, in a heartbeat and comes back in a heartbeat. Um, and I feel it's my job to keep it running, keep it going, never letting it go. And that there, things must remain varied. Sometimes things, you know, you want you want a change in in rhythm and uh, action and and pitch and uh, the, uh, sometimes my voice can be very cartoonish and sometimes it's just speaking normal and that uh, that there is some there is some sort of invisible energy within the room that I feel I am manipulating when I'm moving my hands around when I'm gesticulating when I'm speaking and that I am. Uh, somehow in tune with that or trying to be aware of that and uh, connecting that energy, the strands of those energies between myself and the audience without sounding too whatever airy-fairy about it all. But like it is – like I'm aware the whole time that like this whole enterprise, this whole show can just fall apart in, a, in, a, in an instant if anybody in the audience just um, – you know, you lose interest. Interest, I do when I'm in a, in a heartbeat, and you start thinking about other things. And so I, I'm aware that that can happen, and it is my job to uh, to ensure against that and to keep people on board and keep them interested. And that the way to do that is to to be interesting and to to uh, constantly uh, mutate the way that I'm telling the story. So that not only do people are not, I don't want people to be able to predict 
what's going to happen in a plot ways. I don't want people to be able to predict what I'm going to be doing physically next or vocally next. Uh, that the whole thing must feel like a, a you know some kind of ride that you are on. Uh, Sounds like you're keeping it fresh for yourself. And I, yes, and I do it differently for myself each night too, so that I'm not uh, I'm not like falling into a rut or just doing something. Uh, the same exact way each night because I, because uh, I wanted to feel to the audience like I am in a way getting up and just telling the story to them right now even though everyone in the audience knows I've done this show before many other times and it feels like a well thought out performance but at the same time it should also feel like something that is happening like right now and organically and that nobody including myself is entirely sure what's exactly going to happen next Okay, um, that would just scare the hell out of me. Yeah, and to answer your question, I I don't get uh, stage fright, and um, I mean that that isn't to say that I don't feel the 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 um, that kind of uncomfortable sensation uh, that we all get before we're we are about to have a big energy change within ourselves. You know, it's akin to the feeling of of like. Uh, jumping into a pool on a hot day and you, you're hot and you want to jump into a pool, but you hesitate a little bit because you know there's going to be a change in your energy, in your state, and that for a brief second it's going to be uncomfortable and then you'll get used to the water and then it'll be great and you'll be happy. That's the same sort of feeling I have before going on stage of like, okay, I got to go and do this thing and uh, – there's always a little part that's thinking like, oh man, I could just be home watching Netflix. Like I don't, I don't know why exactly I'm <laughs> putting my body. I could through. be gone bowling. I could do anything. I could be them out there watching me. Um, but uh, but I wouldn't say that's the same as stage fright. I don't. I don't. It's more just like, okay, I got to do this physical thing. Maybe you're going to go for a run. You you exercise and then you you put off actually starting the run because you just you're. You like the physical state that you're in, and you don't want to have to ramp it up. Yeah. You, in delirium, you you have some highly highly personal moments, um, and one of them sticks out in my mind, and that's that bit where you and Vanessa are separated by a river and two countries. Uh -huh. You get into this heartrending, just few moments about wanting to swim the river and rush over and and be with her and bring her back and you know cross borders illegally and take all these physical chances just to make your togetherness happen and how do you feel because I want to ask you about touring after this so mm -hmm. um, how do, how does it feel to take these highly personal moments of your personal life, to repeat the word personal 14 times mm -hmm. in a row, mm -hmm. um, and share them with audiences of complete strangers. Well, you know, it's, it's sort of like, it's, in a way, it's, it's easier to get up on stage and speak about personal things to strangers, because I can't, I, I can see people a little bit, and you can see people in the front rows, I'd depending on how uh, big the audience is or how well-lit the room is. I mean, usually it's, uh, it's dark, and uh, there are lights pointing right at me, and so a lot of times I'm blind. Um, uh, but even if I can see the audience, uh, which I prefer to see the audience, they are still – I don't know them. And they – we are having this moment, but then the show is going to end, and then they're going to go on their way, and the show will mean whatever it will mean to them. Um, but I won't uh, – you know, I don't know them and won't see them again. It's different than just in in life off the stage, having a personal moment with somebody else is a, is a lot more awkward and difficult because you know I'm I'm probably have an actual relationship with them um, that goes beyond the moment of me revealing whatever personal thing I'm revealing, and uh, you know, and 
there's just uh, that's just a little bit more uh, embarrassing because I'm probably going to see them again tomorrow and then the next day after that and and I will be aware that they know this thing about me or that maybe I've um, embarrassed myself by revealing too much or or whatever it is but what on stage uh, you know I don't know I, I often don't even live in the in the city so uh, you know I will do this thing and then hopefully it will mean something to people and hopefully they'll get something out of it. But I think that people can also react to me differently too because in the same way I don't know them, they don't know me. And so it, I think it can make it safe for people to to feel certain things, to respond emotionally, to laugh or to cry in the darkness of a room um, where they're surrounded by other people doing the same thing, kind of led by the story that's happening in front of them. But they're they're able to have a sort of more intimate personal reaction to what's going on also because they're not going to have to see me tomorrow or or ever again if they don't want to you know and that uh so we can have this sort of like myself and an audience can have an intimate moment together um without without having to worry about like what what, you know what are we going to talk about over breakfast tomorrow or something like that you know and in a way it's like a one night stand or something like that or or you know you go backpacking in another country and you meet a beautiful person and you have a beautiful night with them whatever that means uh and then you both know you're going your separate ways tomorrow and that can kind of intensify the intimacy and the beauty of it and the um excitement of it and it can make it feel all the more special uh because you know that there will be no uh awkward um, expectations that will follow from this particular moment you're having. Yeah. Just uh, it could so it could feel like that way in the, in the theater. So to get up and to relate these personal things is to sort of um, is to sort of extend that personal moment to the other people in the room, and then uh, and then we'll and then and then goodbye. Yeah. Hey kids, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and this is episode number 121, September 2019. Our guest is Martin Dockery, a master storyteller, playwright, performer, who travels the globe telling stories of adventure, love, pain, redemption, and sometimes about making a really bad judgment call. After that, Vanessa and I, we are climbing a small mountain in the central highlands of Mexico with our Mexican guide and fittingly his dog. As a mod of butterflies are getting more and more numerous all around us until we finally get to the very top of the mountain and Vanessa and I steal away by ourselves into the woods until the two of us alone come to a tree that is so covered in monarch butterflies you can no longer see the tree underneath it. It's just a branch with a butterfly upon a butterfly upon a butterfly and underneath it a tree that is giving support and strength and succor for its loved ones. This tree that has put on a winter coat of orange and black that is shimmering as we are walking towards it across a carpet of mostly dead monarch butterflies, those still alive just lazily making their way towards death. And let me tell you, when you are looking for some kind of metaphor to help you make sense of the loss of a loved one, you can do no better than go into the central highlands of Mexico to see where the monarch butterflies all congregate for the winter, right? These little pinpricks of intelligence for who life and death seem merely to be phases in what now seems to me to be the epic life cycle of the superorganism known as butterfly. I watch you perform. Your eyes never leave the audience. You're looking into faces from the word one all the way straight through to the end and you shift and you find different people and you talk directly to them. And the material that you use is something that they can relate to immediately because it's not highfalutin. It's not esoteric. These are things that everybody in the audience can understand and can sympathize with. Um, You mentioned earlier something about kinetic moments and your shows seem to be a series of kinetic moments here there you're connecting here with this story you're connecting with that guy you're you're looking directly into the eyes of this woman and it's a back and forth feeding thing going on um and i think that is the high point of what it is you do yes the story you are telling is one thing but the fact that you are making everybody in the audience feel like a part, an integral part of this performance. That's the special thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, 
I appreciate you saying that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. You know, some people, you know, get up on stage, they look at the audience. It's like, oh crap, what was my next line? Um, yeah, I, I, uh, you know, there's something like you, you, I do. I want to look at people as much as I can. As much again, you know, sometimes, sometimes the, the bright lights. You know, it depends how the, you know, the lights are. How much I'm blinded. I, as I said before, I prefer to be able to see the audience. Um, Sometimes you could just see the people in the front few few rows, and then you have to just, uh, you know, assume that you're looking into the eyes of people beyond them. But whether for the for those people that are out there, I think it's important to have moments where, at least in what I'm doing, for me to be looking at people and and to have some eye contact and to not be afraid of that. Either way, and I try not to look at anyone for like too long and make it, make it, you know, uh, suddenly yeah. awkward or whatever to make them suddenly feel. But to look at them long enough to be like, yeah, I see you, and you're you're seeing me, and and uh, and like what you said before, to not be uh, too highfalutin or precious mm-hmm. about it. That like, I'm just I'm just a guy. I'm just a guy, just like you're just a a, a guy or. A, or a gal out there and and I'm telling a story and the details of my story are whatever they are uh you know but what is common is the um, uh, the neuroses that I'm experiencing the highs and the lows the emotions and that's what we're all tapping into in this room in this moment and that's what's uh yeah. that's what brings us together and, and makes the a show worthwhile yes um we've been talking about single shows here and the intensity of what happens I'm not sure what month this show is going to air right now it's the it's the beginning of July 2019 and I'm shuffling shows up for the next few months but I was looking at your up and coming schedule and you are performing five separate one person shows in the next three months I'm going to bypass the are you insane question because that's kind of moot at this point um, but let's talk about how long you've actually been doing this for a living, how long you've been touring, what's it like being on the road so much? Because you're not home a lot. You've got a wife, you've got a baby. Um, and how do you stay sane doing all of this? Yeah. Um, well, I, you know, I, I feel like on the one hand, like how do any of us stay sane doing whatever we're doing, right? That like uh, my particular profession or, or or whatever we want to call this has its has its moments that w- make me feel like I'm I'm becoming untethered to reality or that I am stressed out or whatever but I, so I'm aware that everybody has that in in all their professions whether it involves traveling or not traveling that there is an inherent uh, tedium <laughs> to life and that um, part of what we're trying to do every day is is to to dance through that and keep things interesting and alive for us but specifically um, it's it's my, what I'm doing is ever evolving. As you mentioned before, I have a baby and the baby is one year old and we went on tour last summer with the baby. We left New York where we live, uh, at six weeks, uh, with the baby and then traveled for two and a half months, uh, between theater festivals. And, uh, and that was, uh, difficult and, and good. I mean, good in that I don't want to miss, uh, being with this, uh, being with this baby, being with my family, um, seeing how this creature, uh, this little girl is kind of coming online and becoming a human being. I've never had a baby before. This is maybe the only time I ever will. So I don't want to miss out on it. So I'm feel quite fortunate that, uh, the baby and Vanessa are able to come on tour, uh, last summer. And then we're going to do it again this summer and it will have its own challenges because at some point soon she'll begin walking. And then at some point, uh, I don't know when she will begin talking and she'll be expressing opinions and she will have desires and she will, I don't know what she will do. She'll be, she'll be something. And I don't know what that will be like, but it's sort of exciting. I've been, I've been doing this touring since 2009. So it's the 11th year of doing it. Uh, so I welcome having a, a change to it all and trying to do it now with a little tiny one-year-old human being. 
What's, uh, what's also exciting this summer is that Vanessa and I will be performing together on stage, which we weren't able to do last year because of the baby being so small. But we are going to uh, – uh, she's going to be on stage. We're going to do uh, a play that we've done before together, um, which I wrote and she dramaturged. And uh, so that will be cool. It means we're going to have to find babysitters, which, which we've never done. Uh, but – That'll just be part of the yeah. the challenge ahead of us. And um, when you asked before, like you know, how how do you keep from, you know, how do you keep your head on straight? I guess is just sort of like when I'm out there performing, I I have this great uh, feeling if the show goes well that I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing in life, and that uh, regardless of whatever money I may or may not be making from the show or whatever's going on, that feeling cannot be replaced by anything else. That deep comfort of walking off stage and feeling I connected with people in a room, this is what I'm supposed to be doing with my life and, and is what I'm doing with my life. It's too bad that can't be bottled up and, you know, and uh, yeah. to, be, to, to drink from over the cold winter months when when uh, when we're back in New York, mostly trying to uh, apply to festivals and whatnot for the next year, right. and when life's purpose and meaning can feel uh, a bit more diffused. Sounds like you got it bottled up to begin with. <laughs> so, you know, at times. Working with Vanessa, um, mm -hmm. you mentioned you write, she dramaturgs. Um, this is Concrete Drops. The the the. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, First of all, please ex explain the name Concrete Drops, and let's talk about the way you guys work together to have one writing and the other dramaturging. Please explain dramaturging, at least, because that's different for everybody. I, I know. Think. It is. Um, it is. And just to mention the obvious, the amount of trust in each other's professionalism to make the final product as good as it can be. It um, sounds like a wonderful relationship. Well, it's a, it's a, it's interesting that to be, you know, to be creating uh, art with someone that you also are sharing a life with, you know, uh, that you we're living in the same apartment. And so we have to kind of schedule time for when are we working on the play and, and when are we just, being, you know, ourselves living a life, the, the actual four walls are exactly the same. So we have to decide, okay, when, when are we doing the, when are we doing what? Um, and when do we have time to do what? But, you know, I, the way it's worked so far is that um, I, I write these plays. Uh, we've done four of them uh, together. Uh, and then I've also written a fifth play that uh, she directed, but which was me and another guy and uh you know i write these plays and i i don't tell her anything about them until the play is done because i feel like these plays and these ideas we have are at least for me they're they're fragile yeah. and um if i speak about them to other people and i get anything less than absolute enthusiasm it can very much affect my opinion of the idea and can make me feel like, eh, it's not that great. Mm. So I'll write these plays. Um, so that also that so she can read the play and experience it in the way that the audience will experience it insofar as how the story unfolds. And then we will read it and then she will kind of give her ideas and, and talk about what is working, what isn't working and, and, um, you know, and sort of make the character that she plays her own as we then also direct it together, direct each other, which is probably an art in and of itself for a, a couple to be directing each other. But it's uh, – it's That sounds like an interesting situation. <laughs> you know, it, <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, how do, you, how, do you, how do you tell your partner that they maybe should be doing it differently? <laughs> yeah. You know, but uh, – yeah. But I, I think we've gotten better at it. I think that the hardest was the first show we did, which was in 2011. And um, it was a show that uh, I had written 18 years before. And uh, it did not do so well when we toured it across the Fringe Festival circuit. But uh, 
but it it served as the medium for our courtship and so in that way the play was a success uh but working together and, and directing each other was was it was a little rough at the beginning and now i feel like it's it we're both easy going about it that's good because that doesn't happen it's, too often i'm, I'm yeah. i know from directing actors i i don't live with uh, uh-huh. and share a life with that I have to do two things. I have to get them to do what it is I want them to do and to phrase it in ways that keep them empowered, yeah. engaged, and respected. And sometimes that's not easy, especially when you have a really bad rehearsal and we all know we have those no matter what. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um and, you know, it's like, you know, hey, Bob, uh, your monologue just totally sucked. Can you actually right. try acting <laughs> next time? Thank you. Yeah, uh, it works. comes out in different ways. And, yeah, when, when you bring your work home with you sometimes, that gets a little bit trickier. Well, what's what's tricky, too, is just like, you know, we get into arguments as every couple does. We have we have moments when we're not particularly excited to be hanging out together. Uh, and but we've scheduled to have a rehearsal. So to be able to um, do this rehearsal when you're feeling uh, angry at the other person because of nothing that has to do with the play, it's just because of life and because that's what happens when two people live together. You know, that's that's something else too, you know, that, and then I find often rehearsing a play will, you know, when we are in a, in a, some sort of difficult moment before the rehearsal, uh, usually we'll feel actually better after rehearsal, maybe just cause you know, we've, we've now spent an hour having a fake conversation, which is to say doing the words of this play. And, uh, <laughs> and then that kind of can, you know, allow time for the various hormones to work their way through your body and and for you to sort of be like you know get a new perspective and be like ah it's not so bad it's okay rehearsal is therapy i love it yeah it it is a a, kind of a couple's therapy thing but it can certainly be weird though Yeah, yeah to like to be to be in a in a fight and then have to uh do a show which because it's a drama there are fights in yeah. these shows. There are arguments. Uh, so now you have to put on hold your real arguments. So you can have a fake argument for a while. Uh, and yeah, but doesn't yeah. that fake argument take some of the real argument out of the real argument? You put it into the fake argument, and everybody thinks you're great actors. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, you know. Um, yeah, it can be. I had I had this experience uh, in this past November doing a, a play of mine that Vanessa wasn't in. It's the play I mentioned that I'm doing with the other guy that Vanessa directed. And uh, we did it here in New York and it was off Broadway and we were, it was opening night. And then uh, right before we're going to go on stage for opening night, uh, the other actor suddenly realizes he forgot to write something on his hand. And that's in the play. He's supposed to have something written on his hand, but you know what? Like, my opinion is, okay, we're going on in one second, not that important. We'll just pretend it's written on your hand because that's what we're doing with every other aspect of this play. Like, the room we're pretending to be in, in the house we're pretending to be in. We'll pretend there's something written on your hand. But in that one split second, he suddenly says, oh, my God, I forgot this thing, and then runs away from backstage, down the stairs, uh. disappears from the green room, and then the lights come up on the stage, and I'm left there, like, behind the curtain. We're supposed to have gone on, okay? The lights are supposed to come up. We're supposed to be on stage and immediately start having this conversation. From the audience's point of view, they're just seeing an empty stage now with the lights on, and I'm looking through the curtain, and I'm... <laughs> incredulous and mad and I don't understand that I don't know what to do. Do I go on stage and vamp for a while? I don't even know what that would look like. It would certainly not fit with the play. So I leave and run after my castmate, John, and I run down the stairs. I find him in the green room and I'm now I'm yell whispering at him Mm -hmm. saying, John, what are you doing? And, And then he's scratching this, this word onto his hand with the pen. And I'm like, get back up here. And like, I get him, uh, and we run back up the stairs. From the audience's point of view, they've, they've seen the lights come up, uh, and then they've seen the lights go out to blackout, and then they've seen the lights come up, uh, and it's empty stage a second time, and then the lights go out, and then the lights oh, third God. time, and then 
we are on stage and then we begin the conversation. And then uh, that was just an extreme example of like, I am really like floored by John's decision to uh, have run away. And I want to just like yell at him and be like, what are you thinking? What is wrong with you? But I can't because we have to have this 45 minute fake conversation, yeah. Yeah. which is the play um, during which my character often calls him an idiot. Uh, and those moments were rich in few <laughs> with real feeling and real depth as I yelled at him on stage about what an idiot he is. Uh, and then find the end of the play when he reveals this word written on his hand because it happens at the end of the play. It is illegible. It is like scratches with the pen because he wrote it as he was running back up the stairs. And I was just, just, I was just amazed. But uh, it was such a – it was such an interesting thing to, to be like – I don't think I've ever had to uh, – wanted to like kind of yell about something at someone. But first we have to uh, yell about something else in front of other people for a while, though what I'm yelling at him is, is quite similar in its sentiment, <laughs> if not the actual subject matter. That kind of thing can happen with Vanessa and I, but it's never happened to that extent like it did last November. I love but, live theater. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, really? Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep, sorry, dude. I mean... Yeah. Oh, man. Martin Dockery, thank you so very, very much for taking the time to be with us today. This is this has been exquisite. Thank you so much. Thank you, George, very much for having me on. Okay. Um before we before I let you go, um, please let my audience know how they can find out where you're playing, what kind of stuff you're doing, uh, uh where can they find out everything Martin Dockery? Well, I have a website. Websites very creatively named my name, so it is martindockery.com, and uh, I'll be I'll be touring to various uh, fringe festivals uh, this summer. I'll just briefly list off the cities: Winnipeg, Calgary, Edmonton, Vancouver, Rochester. Between now and the end of September. Sounds fantastic. I would wish you all the best of luck, but you probably don't need it. Just. Have we all need it, George. We time. all need the luck all the time. Yeah, but I think we make most of our own. Anyway, yeah. take care and uh, good luck in the future. Thanks, George. Hey, kids. Thanks for listening to On Stage, Off Stage. On Stage, Off Stage is produced monthly, and all of our shows can be found at onstageoffstage.org and also on iTunes. If you enjoy what we do, please recommend us to your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at OnOffStage. And if you are a theater artist with an upcoming project of interest or work in a part of theater we haven't covered yet or know of someone in the theater world who'd make some great chat, please send us a note at info at OnStageOffStage.org. OnStageOffStage believes in and advocates for a world where all people are free to live their lives as they wish, in peace and without fear. We believe in universal respect, diversity, and equality in all areas of life for all people, no matter what their nationality, race, religion, age, sexual status, or gender. Onstage Offstage will never promote or endorse those who seek to diminish others because of who they are. I'm George Sapio. Thank you once again, and happy theatering to all of you. <laughs>